All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a time to fellowship together in the unity of the faith. As your precious word states, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. What a precious time this is for all of us, Father, being able to learn your word and be set free in time. Thank you for revealing to us your grace and your love, for we love because you first loved us. We pray, Father, for the lost, that they might see and accept the light before it's too late, that they might realize their own depravity and turn to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for salvation. We pray also that our hearts remain steadfast and true to the Great Commission, for this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation of really the most, not to use too big of a word, but the most monumental series we've ever covered from this pulpit. Uh, Truth be told, sort of a restart of the gospel proper, getting it full, getting it correct, getting it right. Um, And then moving to salvation and sanctification as sort of congruent byproducts of the gospel. But as Paul said in Romans one seventeen, it's from faith to faith. That literally everything that we are this day even is tied directly to the gospel. So why wouldn't we take this time, why wouldn't the Spirit enable this ministry to put out the fullness of the gospel this way? It only makes total sense. So the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Today is a special message in the sense that the Spirit's asking you to dig deep, step back, and revel in God's marvelous work. Your life, this day, His Son and His cross especially, are all part of this morning's message. And I call it a message today because it's less of a lesson than it is a time to simply adore the Lord. But here's the thing, my dear sheep. None of that is possible if your perspective is skewed. None of it is possible if you're still standing in your own way. None of it is possible if you don't truly hear the Spirit's voice through this vessel this morning. 
So I want to share some things from my own heart, and uh, it's not often that he has me do this, but I'm sure, I'm confident that the reason he's having me do it is so that you all can relate at a personal level. That scripture such as, you know, imitate his faith comes alive in you, knowing that you're not alone, that the guy that stands behind the pulpit, the one that's been ordained as the authority even in your life, has gone through his own growing pains, has learned, has grown, continues to grow, uh, even before your eyes. So I want to share a few things on what the Spirit's been doing in this man's soul for the sake of you being able to relate, remember, The Bible itself is about people. The spiritual life, we collide with what? People. This whole thing. Jesus Christ, a person. God the Father, a person. God the Holy Spirit, another person. This whole thing, folks, is about people. So I want to share a few things with you uh, to get us situated this morning. I used to think that spiritual maturity was about me growing up. But now I know that it's about the gospel growing up in me. Unfettered, unhidden, fully bloomed, brilliant light as of Jesus Christ Himself. I used to perceive that my salvation was a historical event. Something to be grateful for, of course. But now I know that my salvation is my sanctification. That my sanctification is my salvation. I used to think that the real work is done after salvation. But now I know that the great work is already done in me. I've learned through Scripture that maturity is a function of shedding preconceptions. The Bible records how others have been sanctified like this. It's simple. I used to think that Jesus' words were, quote, for another era and forever reserved for, quote, another people, sterilized by the context of his life. I now know that his words are the most fundamental of all. In fact, he sent his disciples out to preach and defend them forevermore. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 2820, Part B. That's the tail end of the Great Commission. And then finally, I used to focus on me with Jesus always there by my side. Now I focus on Jesus with me by His side. I am His slave. He is not mine. He bought me when I was broke. I did not purchase him from an evangelist. So, these are things that are on my heart. 
as your shepherd. And I humbly echo Paul's sentiments. Go to 1 Timothy 1.12. We'll get back to that. But that should get us situated here this morning. With that said, I would like to humbly echo Paul's sentiments. 1 Timothy 1.12 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So there you have the very meaning, the purpose of Jesus' life. The Gospel in a nutshell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't start thinking about doctrine this and doctrine that. Don't do that. Jesus Christ, the person that we're supposed to relate to, the person we're supposed to emulate even, our prototype, came into the world to save sinners. Well, that makes it really easy, doesn't it? That is the Gospel, in a nutshell. McLaren, on 1 Timothy 1.15 that great gospel which fills the Bible and overflows on the shelves of crowded libraries is here, without harm to its power, folded up into one saying, which the simplest can understand sufficiently to partake of the salvation which it offers. Now, every word there is weighty and might be not beaten out, but opened out into volumes. From this past week's lessons, we might take 1 Timothy 1.15 to heart this way. When reading theology, we must tap into the new creature's perspective. The one that never has a problem with the plainly stated things in the Bible. Christ Jesus came to what? Save sinners. The new creature in you just rejoiced. Anytime the new creature brushes up against the gospel truth, it rejoices. 
It's not interested in modifying it. It's not interested in overcomplicating it. It's interested in embracing it for what it is simply. Scott Grande said last Tuesday, sometimes we think too much. I totally agree. Sometimes we just think too much. Sometimes we're looking for things that aren't there to our own detriment. It's incredible. So again, this morning is a message, not a lesson. Embrace it. Be excited about the Word. Reading your Bible is a lot easier than some of you have believed it is, in the past even. And this is from Thursday's lesson, Big Picture Reading. If we read the Bible with the Gospel lens, we clearly see God's doctrines, the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. However, if we read it with a doctrinal lens, we run the risk of losing sight of the Gospel. Just think of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's treatise on love. Faith, hope, love, abide these but the greatest is love. So I want to share a big picture thought that all of you need to chew on for a while. And we're going to get slightly historical. But it's very important because when you read your Bibles, you don't just read it for the sake of reading it with your own personal experiential lens. There has to be some concept of context that's so why it's very dangerous even just to pluck verses out. I know I do it from the pulpit, but that's on the assumption that we've either done, either done a prior study on it, or I'll give you something there, or you're, in addition to that, reading your own Bibles. That there's a certain general maturity in the congregation that I can do that. And trust me, I do it cautiously. But that's the way he has me teaching. So I want to share a big picture that you all need to chew on for a while, because it really gives the nature of the early church its rightful place in your, in your soul. That when you read, say, red letters, it's important that you understand who Jesus' audiences were, who he was talking to, and why did he use even the language he used. They didn't Talk the way we talked, right? I mean, the Bible wasn't even written in English, so you get it. So we have to at least have some notion of what was actually going on in context. See, the problem is I believe that the flesh hijacks everything. It takes our own human experience. takes things now. Things are generally complicated in life. Just technology alone has made it super complicated. Everything's like... Right? Everything's, a, everything's a race. Everything's way more than it needs to be. That's why people don't know how to relax anymore. But I don't want to digress too far. I need to give you some big picture. Up here on the board, this will get you situated as well. The nature of the early church. Jesus' ministry was focused on salvation. We just read that. Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, came to save sinners. That was his ministry. 
Think about it. His formal ministry was three years long, and he covered a lot of ground, and he talked to a lot of people. That means, guess what? He wasn't spending all his time on doctrinal issues. He was trying to get people what? Saved. Imagine that. Imagine that. I often compare even my own historical teaching with what might have been Jesus' teaching. I say, why in the world would mine be significantly more complicated than Jesus's? Seriously. So we have to go back to the time when he lived and understand what was he trying to do? Create another band of Pharisees? Or was he trying to save people? Jesus' ministry was focused on salvation. Being Jewish and giving the Jews part in the gospel, he often spoke keenly on topics at the forefront of their minds. For example, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The keystone of his message, though, was salvation. Not so-called spiritual maturity. That phrase never appears in the Bible, by the way. That's something we use in reference to growing up. You know, walking, having more faith added to us. Great, those are great things. But what does that faith look like? as we've been learning. So the keystone of his message was salvation, not so-called spiritual maturity. Some of, you, some of you might be saying, where is this coming from? Pastor's bringing up other doctrines that I've you know, categorized away into other aspects of my learning. Where is this coming from? But therein lies the stumbling block for some of you. Let me drill down a little bit further. The early church wasn't hyper-categorical. Oh, the Pharisees were. But the early church wasn't. Hyper-categorization runs the risk of disjointed doctrines, which ultimately ruins one's vision of the gospel in its purest, fullest sense. The early church, go ahead and read it. The early church, look at Jesus and his apostles. You know, the guys that wrote the New Testament. It wasn't hyper-categorical. It wasn't. If it was, then Paul would have never said, I don't come to you in superiority of wisdom of speech. He didn't. Why? Because the gospel is simple. It's meant for everyone. It's not supposed to be complicated or exclusive or uh, snobby, or you get the point. That's not it at all. That's all fruit of the flesh. There's a whole group of Christians out there that need to listen to my words this morning. And I wish I could just, I don't know, take, print out my notes and smack them upside the head with them. I'm serious. I'm serious when I say that. There's no, but there's no way for me to like, you know, I wish I could have like a spiritual syringe and just like, hold them down. There you go. Now you're free. Sophomore. There's a whole group of Christians out there that need to listen to my words this morning. And I'm not, 
afraid to say that many of them are people that I know. Some still listen to my message even from time to time. Some may even be in this church. But as the Spirit's been teaching us, or shall I say retooling us as readers of His Bible, this exercise isn't about pointing fingers. It's about getting the gospel full and right. And then basing our walking by the Spirit or worthy of the gospel or all the other worthies that we've noted as being intimately tied to it, the gospel. In other words, our very walk is grounded in the gospel itself. That's why I call it living the gospel reality, however you'd like to look at it. But there's a lot of people, including my own historical self, that thought the gospel was just some historical event in my life. And that now the the real charge was going forward and being mature. What a moron. But that's how it goes. Because we have to go through that space to figure out that that is stupid. And fleshly, and pharisaical, and snobbish, and elitist. You want me to keep going? Some of you are like, mm, yeah, that's me too, so settle down. Let me reiterate our first point to show you something. <clears throat> the nature of the early church, Jesus' ministry was focused on salvation. Being Jewish and given the Jews part, of the, part in the gospel, he often spoke keenly on topics at the forefront of their minds. Of course he did. Things like the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, or the kingdom of God in the other Gospels. The keystone of his message was salvation, though. Not so-called spiritual maturity. Go to Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10. So I just want you to get this context. It's very important that you get the context of the fundamental character in the Bible. It's very important to understand what was the nature of his ministry. Honestly, what was the nature and scope of his ministry? Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What does it say? The Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ. Why did He come? What was the purpose? Simply stated, to seek and to save that which was lost. That doesn't sound like anything complicated at all. You will never see a parallel statement about the purpose of Jesus' incarnation on the topic of so-called spiritual maturity. He won't. You know why? Because that's not why He came. He came to seek and to save. He came to save sinners. So you need to think about why that is, why you will never find a parallel statement about so-called spiritual maturity 
which actually isn't even in the Bible as a phrase. I know I use it, so don't anybody say, but you use it. Yeah, I know. Aren't you just so bright? (laughs) Oh, sophomores. So you have to think why that is. And don't delay. Especially if your conception of Jesus in the Bible has historically misrepresented His mission. I know groups of people that hardly even read the Gospels. They so-called dispensationalize it away. Not for us. Jesus' words, not for us. Are you kidding me? Consider the opening phrase of Jesus Himself in His formal ministry. Go to Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17 From that time Jesus began, again this is the beginning, this is after he got tested, remember, this is the sort of, you know, universally accepted start of his formal ministry. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, he came to his own Jews. What was on their mind? The kingdom. I've taught you about what that looked like. I'm going to get into it now. But their expectation was the kingdom was coming. That's how they mistaken the whole Messiah thing. And they, hey, our king's here for political reasons. And they had the whole thing screwed up. But that was their language. Repent, though, he said. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. His audience was wondering, how do I get into the kingdom? It was that simple. How do I get into the kingdom? It wasn't even an issue of maturity. It was how do I get in? So he used that language. Verse 18, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you spiritual giants. Oh, I'm sorry, my bad, my bad. I got the moron translation. Yeah, I picked that up in the sophomore Christian store. I'd read the title to you, but you probably wouldn't understand it because it was multisyllabic. It was at least seven, eight, nine syllables long with a couple of hyphens. He said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishes of men. Come on. These were fish, you know, by local standards, again, these guys were uneducated. Don't you remember what the Pharisees said about the apostles? These guys were uneducated. But yet they had all the confidence in the world. And that drove the Pharisees bananas. You see, because faith isn't about an intellectual pursuit. That's where they got it wrong. Faith is a gift from God based on humility. He said, follow me and I will make you fishes of men. And look at the humility. Seriously? Some of you, if, that, if you were watching television, you'd be like, hold on, hold on. 
hold on, Jesus, I'll be right there. This is like the best part of the Brady Bunch. This is when, this is when Masha breaks her nose. Or Jan says, Masha, Masha, Masha. Or Peter's voice cracks. Remember that one? Oh, when it's time to... No. Change. Trying to loosen it up. This is simple. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Look at the humility. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Up here on the board, a little bit more on Jesus' mission. Jesus' commission from the Father. Fishing implies catching. The focus is not on fisheries where fish are matured. It is on catching souls, saving them. Hence the great commission He gives His disciples in Matthew 28, 18-20. Fishing is about catching, saving souls. That's the analog. At the very end of His precious ministry, Jesus put a capstone on the primary reason He was sent to earth up here on the board, the life of Jesus, well, we should know this first and foremost, Jesus was born to die. He came to save sinners. His audience was in shambles, a disoriented mess. His focus was to call His sheep to Himself. It was not to somehow mature them. I'm not saying that sheep don't mature you'd be missing the point. But what was the primary focus of Jesus' ministry? To call His sheep to Himself, to save sinners. I mean, who can even describe... You tell me, All right, anyone want to come up here right now? I'll give you the pulpit right now with the mic. You describe in great detail what spiritual maturity is. Who can even describe that thing? His focus was to call his sheep to himself. It was not to somehow mature them. Given the vastness of his ministry, the physicality of it. Remember, there weren't, uh, you know, there weren't mopeds back then. Given the physicality of it even, he had much to do regarding the simplicity of the gospel. These people were a mess. They were infiltrated by religion. Their entire infrastructure, they were what you would call a um, theocratic-centric government even. A theocracy. Which means that religion and government were fused. In other words, their entire culture was beset by pharisaical ridiculousness. There was a lot of work. There were a lot of preconceptions that that needed to be worked on, thrown out just to get people saved. So you have to ask, how does that mirror our lives right now? Look around. Look around. People are completely lost. Not kind of. Not a little. Not, oh, I'll get back to it. I love Jesus. You know, I'm just a little bit... No. Jesus who? Who the hell is Jesus? Jesus, Jesus... That guy's a fool. Bunch of crippled little wannabe Christian whatever. Bunch of lost little weak saps. I'm king of this world. Look at my heap over here. Look at my mansion on the hill. And Satan's like, 
This world is in shambles. This area, this triangle, is a stink hole. It's putrid. Furthermore, if you consider the nature of his apostles' ministries, even long after Jesus had ascended to heaven, you'll notice that their primary mission in life wasn't peddling some so-called advanced stage of spiritual growth. Read it. That's not what they did. That's what people with a wrong lens want to make it say. But if you actually read the Bible with the heart of Jesus Christ, understanding what his mission was to start with, and then he trained who? His apostles. What do you think their mission was? You think they were about to make the same mistake the Pharisees made? He would have said, no way. These guys were trained in the gospel. Go out and save some souls. Go make believers. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go do this thing and I'll be with you till the end of the age. So even their primary mission in life wasn't peddling some so-called advanced stage of spiritual growth. To the contrary, actually, they were focused on saving souls and protecting the gospel proper. Peter is a wonderful example, writing to the Jews in the first epistle after his name. Go to 1 Peter 2.21. 1 Peter 2.21. I think what's happened, frankly, folks, is a lot of people... And I'm not saying they were ill-intent, but they've become ill-intent, in a sense. Started with the Pauline epistles and then backed into Jesus. And that, my friends, is backwards. Remember, Jesus trained Paul. Jesus trained Peter. So what was on these guys' hearts? And what should be on yours? 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, as people even, Jews. But now you have returned, and returned in the original means converted, to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What's the nature of that passage? Salvation. It only becomes complicated when you try to jam other things in there. So the funny thing is, is that mature reading is actually simple reading. Mature reading, listen, mature reading is simple reading. Sophomoric flesh likes to make it complicated. So that it somehow stratifies. Mature reading, I, will pull, I won't tell you who I believe is the most... Per, 
mature person in here. It doesn't matter my opinion on the fact, because God only knows, but I have discernment, so I have an idea. I'm going to tell you right now, if I was to pull that person up on stage right now, you know what they'd say? I love reading my Bible. And my vocabulary is about this long. And they'd love Jesus. That's mature reading. Mature reading is not about (laughs) all that other stuff. Mature reading is about being set free while you're reading, not being made more and more constricted in the process. Up here on the board. The central theme in the Bible is the gospel. The central person is Jesus Christ. The more mature you are, the more you'll read every passage of Scripture in light of these two truths. And every passage will amplify them. That's as good as it gets, my friends. Honest to goodness. That is literally as good as it gets. The central theme in the Bible is the gospel. The central person is Jesus Christ. The more mature you are, the more you'll read every passage of Scripture in light of these two truths, and every passage will amplify them. If you keep on reading Peter's epistles, what you'll find is the very heart of Christ, whose heart was beset on the gospel and saving souls. Again, The life of Jesus. Jesus was born to die. He came to save sinners. His audience was in shambles, a disoriented mess. His focus was to call his sheep to himself. It was not to somehow mature them. Didn't mean he didn't open up the gate. Didn't say you can come in and out of the pasture. You can't come in and out of the pasture and grow up. But that wasn't the primary focus of his ministry. Who can even explain that? His focus was to call his sheep to himself. Given the vastness of his ministry, the physicality of it even, he had much to do regarding the simplicity of the gospel. Another one of his apostles, John, wrote, the very, wrote with the very heart of Jesus also, as we see in his ministry, that it was dominated by the same theme Jesus' was as ours should be even today. Go to John 12.35. John 12.35. Whenever I read the Gospel of John, I'm just blown away by the simplicity of it. You can just hear John's heart just poured out in love. John 12.35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. What's that? A salvation verse. What's he saying? Believe in me. Follow me. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill 
the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to what? Save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him, the word I spoke is what what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and to what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Towards the very end of the Apostle John's lifetime, he was still steadfast. I hope you see it. In the theme that his Lord had burnished in his soul. So don't miss it. This is why the spirits had us focused on the big picture. It's because without it, you run the risk of adopting fleshly themes like the so-called spiritual maturity theme, and I put that in quotes, that has been blown way out of proportion in the canon of Scripture. Not kind of, way out of proportion. Why would that be? Why? Why would anyone blow something out of proportion? The flesh. The flesh. There are people that go to churches all across the country right now that need to know in some way or shape or form, they are literally better than the person sitting next to them in a pew or in a seat. Why? Because they're gross. Because the flesh has hijacked the spiritual life. Instead of focusing on the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ and the gospel itself, they're focused on somehow this thing called spiritual maturity that Jesus Christ never even talked about. Not directly. So I put it in quotes. Spiritual maturity is an issue of faith as a function of humility. The Pharisees' example proves that intellect has nothing to do with maturity. God's righteousness is only satisfied by faith given to us as believers. In other words, you can be the smartest person on the planet, and God might go, but I don't... You're not my child. So I'm not going to give you true faith. Oh, I'm sure you have faith in something, like yourself and your intellect. But I haven't given you my faith, the one that matters. So you are very, very immature in the, most, in the strictest sense. 
So practically speaking, I hope you see what the Spirit's doing for you this morning. I told you it was a quote-unquote special type message. Get your focus right. The idea of, quote, spiritual maturity has been blown way out of proportion with some teaching against divine wisdom even. For example, Ecclesiastes 12.12, which says the dedication of many books is wearying. Jesus' ministry and his great commission for believers was not focused on so-called maturity, but rather saving souls. His plate was full, was it not? His plate was chock full. People were constantly tearing at him. Were they tearing at him like, how do I be spiritually mature? No. They said, how do I get in the kingdom? How do I get eternal life? How do I get saved? Well, let me tell you. And here's a few parables to amplify things. Here's a few direct statements. He was trying to save souls. You know, like plainly stated scripture says, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Imagine that. I didn't even come to judge. I came to what? Save. Look at the context. Don't make more out of it than what it is. It's that simple. And when you realize that, then you have the right lens to actually read your Bibles. And with that lens, it's going to go, this is magnificent. It's this simple and this gorgeous and this beautiful. Yeah, it's always been there. But you see, your flesh was watering it, not the Spirit. So Jesus' ministry and His great commission for believers was not focused on so-called maturity, but rather saving souls. Making disciples, for example, in Matthew 28, 19, means making believers. It means winning souls. So I believe that it's the flesh that purports such things as focusing too heavily on spiritual maturity. You know what the funny thing is? This is what I've learned, and if I pulled that person up here again, this is exactly what you'd see. You'd see, they, have, they don't even care about spiritual maturity. I know. That's part of actually being mature. You're not preoccupied on being mature. Get it? It's like a, uh, you know, a little 13-year-old girl with makeup and pumps and a miniskirt trying to be all grown up. You're missing the point, girl. You're missing the point. It's the funniest thing. The most mature people could care less. It's the same attitude, you know, in Revelation when the 24 throw their crowns down at the Lord's feet. I've taught you this. The ones who receive the crowns could care less other than that it brings glory to God. See, the sophomore says, I need to be spiritually mature so I can get crowns for me. You see the difference? And when you start reading your Bibles with that lens, the whole thing opens up. And you might be saying to yourself, what I say to myself, pretty much every day I I sit down and read my Bible, what a jackass, you wasted all those years. (laughs) Reading it with the wrong lens. Now, I take that with a grain of salt. I know he had to take me, so everybody's like, oh, he had to take you from here to there, and then to here to there, and then you wouldn't be there, you know. Even you taught us this. Oh, oh, sophomores. 
It's incredible. So get yourself together. So I believe it's the flesh that purports such things as focusing too heavily on spiritual maturity and focusing or learning ad nauseum in the absence of living and sharing the gospel. Consider the extremes, for example, especially those evidenced in the Bible, even in the early church. The most commonly understood error by most of you, I would think, would be the Pharisaical one. Most people, oh, they're the ones who, you know. That one's very, everybody understands that one, right? Bunch of religious snobs. The ones where the flesh had taken something simple and beautiful, God's perfect law, and added almost 400 rules and regulations to it, making it something exclusive even to those, you know, in the know. A little later on, the apostles, particularly John, combated Gnosticism, which really didn't mature until the 2nd and 3rd A.D., or A.D. 2 and 3, which was yet another uh, flavor of the flesh's attempt to make it an attempt out of being in the know. I should have said 200, 300 AD. But that's all garbage, folks. In the know, garbage. Historically, the flesh has hijacked the simple, pure things of the gospel for the purpose of self-elevation, self-separation, self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the Gnostics are examples of this. Today, we have other elitist ideologies that hyper-focus on spiritual maturity. And I dare anyone to define that. I know some have tried. In the absence of having even the gospel full and accurate. In the no garbage. Again, historically the flesh has hijacked the simple, pure things of the gospel for the purpose of self-elevation, self-separation, and self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the Gnostics are examples of this. Today we have other elitist ideologies that hyper-focus on spiritual maturity in the absence of having even the gospel full and accurate. It's incredible. No one in the early church had the gospel more accurately placed in their souls than Jesus, of course. And arguably, given their proximity and exposure to him, his apostles would have been next in line. And you know what? All they ever really wanted to talk about was the gospel and salvation. That's all they wanted to talk about. Paul said it too, right? All I want to know is Jesus, I'm crucified, right? And he was brilliant. He probably could have buried anyone in terms of intellect. But he didn't use those things as levers for self-elevation or self-righteousness, you see? He said, I've been there, I've done that. This is easy. I'm afraid that the serpent's going to deceive you the way he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what I'm afraid of. Go to 1 John 4.13. So it's funny because Jesus knew the gospel, you know, more, I mean, he is basically the essence of it. And then he taught his apostles. And if you read the apostles' 
words, what you see is the heart of Christ being slammed up against ridiculousness in the early church. So they were often either reiterating the gospel or defending it, as I've taught. 1 John 4.13 is a good example of John's heart on this. By this we know that we abide in Him. Remember, abiding here means being saved. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. I gave you this on Thursday, I believe. Love is perfected with us. This doesn't mean that at salvation we become perfect lovers. It means that perfect love is now with us. God is love. Providing us with a definite hope and confidence regarding eternal life. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That just means that those things are the same. Up here on the board, otherwise you're a liar. I gave you Cambridge Bible commentary on... 20 and 21 there, verses. The apostle thus anticipates a possible objection. A man may say, I can love God without loving my brother, and I can prove my love by keeping his commandments. You know, John 14, 15. Nay, says St. John, your own argument shows your error. You cannot keep his commandments without loving your brother. Thus, up here on the board, when we have two revelations of God, our brother who is his image, And his commandment, which is his will, not to love our brother is a flagrant violation of both. As Pascal puts it, we must know men in order to love them. We must love God in order to know him. Again, that was to help you with understanding verses 20 and 21. As Paul echoes in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he says, If I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love. So therein lies the great litmus test for believers up here on the board. We know from Scripture that the hallmark of true love is the base desire to live for others. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the manifestation of love, guess what he did? He lived for others. Said, I came to serve. Greater love is no one than this that one laid on his life for his friends. The Spirit will assure you of your faith by revealing to you his love in you. Now, how that happens, don't ask me. Don't write me emails and say, Well, Pastor, I don't understand. I can't. Hey, listen. That's a conversation, a supernatural one between you and God the Holy Spirit who's there to convict you. If you're a believer, what else do you want me to say? That's what the Bible says. 
Go to 1 John 4.13. 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because, how do we know? He has given us His Spirit. So who's going to convict you that you have His love, that He indwells you, the very essence of love, for God is love. God the Holy Spirit is going to say, yes, you have it. Welcome to the family. Sounds good to me. That's the great litmus test, folks. And since we're talking about apostles this morning, might we be remiss by excluding the steward of grace himself, the Apostle Paul? I want to read a passage with you that many of you have read in the past, I'm sure. But this time I want you to focus on two things. And I'm really glad that Jesus Christ is right at the forefront of our message this morning. I want you to think about these two questions relative to Paul's ministry. What is the nature of a well-written introduction like the one in Philippians 1? We're going to read Philippians 1. What's the nature of a well-written introduction? Like why? I mean, some of you are going back to class, right? Like, uh, you know, English class back in high school, something like that. Funkin' Struggles, whatever the heck that English thing was. How to write an intro. What is the nature of a well-written introduction like the one in Philippians 1? What is the primary theme of Paul's ministry as described from a prison cell? You know, when you're in prison, figuratively or literally, you have a lot to think about, don't you? What happens when, all right, so what happens, not to digress here too far, but what happens when something really severe happens in your life? Say you lose a loved one, like, gone, all of a sudden, you know, 20-year-old or something like that. What happens to people? What are they focused on? They focus on the important things. All of a sudden, all the really important things go whoosh. Well, if you were to get thrown into a prison cell right now, I'd be willing to bet a lot of things would go whoosh. Oh, man, I'm going to be in here the rest of my life. I had, I, man, I should have done what mattered. I was so self-absorbed and focused on self and running after these carrots and, you know, and doing all this stuff. And here I am now with Bubba, my roommate, or Bubette if you're a woman, Right? What that means, who knows? But you're going to get a focus right quickly, right? Go to Philippians 1 with these questions in your mind. What's the nature of an introduction? And what's the primary theme of Paul's ministry? Well, let's just read it, because we're going to see both. And it's not going to be hard. I want you to just think. Think about who trained Paul. Who trained Paul? Jesus Christ did. What was the nature of Jesus' ministry? To save souls. The gospel. Go out and spread my gospel. i got to go now. I'm going to send my helper, but i got to go now. Philippians 1.1 Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. 
because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that's what I've been teaching you, both the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how, long, how I long for you all with affection of Jesus or Christ Jesus, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the what? Gospel. See how fo- he's razor-focused on what? The gospel. That word's come up at least, what, three times already. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. In other words, he's in there evangelizing people. He's in there evangelizing people. In prison. Think about that. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You want to know what one of the other litmus tests of spiritual maturity is? That phrase. Have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. That's how you know you're growing up. That you have no, you're not ashamed, Romans 1.16. You're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the very power of God for salvation. Not you know more words than your neighbor. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the what? The gospel. You know my mission? I'm, all right. Who was more scrappier than Paul that we know of? Probably not hardly anyone. I'm not going to put in that, you know, superlative on him, but you know what I'm saying. Paul was one scrappy little man. And what does he say? I'm scrappy because I was appointed to the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. He's really talking about ridiculousness in the churches even. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Boy, I can relate to that, trust me. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, you, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus 
through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the what? Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the what? The gospel. Do you get it yet? Oh, but Paul, no, shut up. Stop it. Stop it. Seriously, stop it. It's not hard, folks. We make it hard. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, for the gospel even, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So there you have Paul being totally transparent in his opening remarks to a tremendously powerful letter to the church at Philippi from a prison cell in Rome. So, the points on the board. What is the nature of a well-written introduction like the one in Philippians 1? An introduction to the entire letter. See, if you go jumping into Philippians 2 and 3 and, you know, start pulling out little verses here and there and then coddling them together with like Ephesians 2 and, you know, 1 John this and do this thing. Because I need a doctrine. Darn it, I need a doctrine. It's been a while. I'm a little bit parched. I need doctrine. Feed me. Feed me doctrine. I'm just going to make stuff up in my soul because my personal experience is like this. Let me, let me go. All right, that looks like something like it. And that looks like something. Let's just jam it together. Who cares about Jesus and his ministry? It's about me anyways and my flesh, so, you know. No. If you don't understand Philippians 1, how in the world are you going to have the right lens to read Philippians 2 and forward? That was Paul's heart. That's what a good introduction does. It sets forth, what is this letter about? You just read it. How many times did you read the word gospel? I don't know. Go back and count it. Oh, I mean, I've got to read it again? Oh, my God. God forbid. Go get a lollipop. What is the primary theme of Paul's ministry as described from a prison cell? The gospel. What do you think it is? Who trained him? Jesus Christ. What do you think his theme is? What do you think his whole life is? Why was he set apart? He had already been the religious Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Been there, done that. What do you think he was doing? He said, I'm here to defend the gospel. He literally wrote it. So, before we close this morning, I ask that you step back and consider the ground we've covered here. I'm going to go quickly because these are points of review. Go back to 1 Timothy 1.15. I just want to wrap this up. I want this all to be fresh, and then we'll go on our merry ways. I mean, that was, what's that? That's Jesus, that was Peter, that was John, that's Paul. I mean, how much more evidence do you need in the Bible? Oh, i got a headache right now. 1 John 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, what? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
among whom I am foremost of all. Might you say that to yourself, even? You know how wretched you are. And yet He saved you. Because that's what He came to do. Again, I'm going to go quickly. McLaren on that verse. That great gospel which fills the Bible and overflows on the shelves of crowded libraries is here without harm to its power, folded up into one saying which the simplest can understand sufficiently to partake of the salvation which it offers. Now every word there is weighty and might be, not beaten out, but opened out into volumes. The gospel is as 1 Timothy 1.15 stated that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This, my friends, is how we are to approach reading the Bible, with every fiber of our being being tied to the gospel. Up here on the board. So we had the notion of big picture reading. If we read the Bible with the gospel lens, we clearly see God's doctrines, the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 However, if we read it with a doctrinal lens, we run the risk of losing sight of the gospel such as 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what we've seen this morning on this topic. The nature of the early church. Jesus' ministry was focused on salvation. Being Jewish and given the Jews' part in the gospel, he often spoke keenly on topics at the forefront of their minds. For example, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The keystone, though, of his message was salvation, not some so-called spiritual maturity. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You will never see a parallel statement about the purpose of Jesus' incarnation on the topic of spiritual maturity. Why is that? Isn't it obvious? He shared His own mission with His disciples. Matthew 4.19-20, And He said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men immediately. They left their nets and followed Him. Jesus' commission from the Father. Fishing implies catching. The focus is not on fisheries where fish are matured. It is on catching souls, saving them. Hence the great commission He gives His disciples in Matthew 28, 18-20. And then the capstone to Jesus' personal ministry was the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. The cross is the foundation of the Gospel. Therefore the life of Jesus. Jesus was born to die. He came to save sinners. His audience was in shambles, a disoriented mess. His focus was to call His sheep to Himself. It was not to somehow mature them. Given the vastness of his ministry, the physicality of it even, he had much to do regarding the simplicity of the gospel. So the spirits doesn't want any of you confused when you read your Bibles. So-called spiritual maturity may not be what you think it is. Spiritual maturity is an issue of faith as a function of humility. The Pharisees' example proves that intellect has nothing to do with maturity. God's righteousness is only satisfied by faith given to us by Him as believers. So get your focus right. The idea of spiritual maturity has been blown way out of proportion. 
with some teaching against divine wisdom even. For example, Ecclesiastes 12.12. Jesus' ministry and His great commission for believers was not focused on so-called maturity, but rather saving souls. Making disciples in Matthew 28.19 means making believers. I will make you fishers of men. You so-called uneducated fishermen. The Pharisees and the Gnostics, though, were famous for distracting people from the gospel by appealing to the human flesh. We call that in-the-know garbage. Historically, the flesh has hijacked the simple, pure things of the gospel for the purpose of self-elevation, self-separation, self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the Gnostics are examples of this today, we have other elitist ideologies that hyper-focus on spiritual maturity in the absence of having even the gospel full and accurate. For we believers, we know that we are saved if we have one key ingredient to the spiritual life. That's the great litmus test. The hallmark of true love is the base desire to live for others. Greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. So the Spirit will assure you of your faith by revealing to you His love in you. 1 John 3, 19 and 20, 4, 13. And then I'll close. I'll share with you what I shared at the very start of class for whatever it's worth to you. I used to think that spiritual maturity was about me growing up. But now I know that it's about the gospel growing up in me unfettered, unhidden, fully bloomed, brilliant light as of Jesus Christ Himself. I used to perceive that my salvation was a historical event, something to be grateful for, of course, but now I know that my salvation is my sanctification, and my sanctification is my salvation. I used to think that the, quote, real work is done after salvation, but now I know that the great work is already done in me. I've learned through Scripture that maturity is a function of shedding preconceptions. The Bible records how others have been sanctified like this. It's simple. I used to think that Jesus' words were for, quote, another era and forever reserved for another people sterilized by the context of his life. I now know that his words are the most fundamental of all. In fact, he sent his disciples out to preach and defend them forevermore. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20, part B. And then finally, I used to focus on me with Jesus always there by my side. Now I focus on Jesus with me by His side. I am His slave. He is not mine. He bought me when I was broke. I did not purchase Him from an evangelist. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You again for this morning's message, for ordaining this time of simply receiving Your magnificent grace, realizing that it is Your love always that motivates it. Father, thank You for creating this local assembly for the glorification of Your Son's name, Jesus Christ. As Your Word states, For this reason also God highly exalted Him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray for those still lost, Father, and we pray especially this day for the mothers hearing my voice this morning, that their day also be filled especially with peace. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.